just for the record, I, I don't want to take credit for that song. Matt suggested it a couple of weeks ago when we were uh, talking about love last time, and I did not. Uh, uh, we, we, we picked to skip it that time and save it for today because it really does fit with the message today. We'll be uh, speaking about the same verses. Excuse me as I'm getting all hooked up here. All right, now we're good. Um, well, uh, in turn to First John, as we've been studying the uh, book of First John, uh, we had a break last week, and uh, we'll return to it and see if we can finish it, not today, but uh, in the next couple of weeks, next three weeks. But uh, first, I wanted to share a little bit of uh, the job I used to do uh, some years ago, because it relates a little bit to uh, the message today. I used what I call a high-tech janitor. And uh, what that means is I used to clean uh, very specialized machine parts. Maybe we can get a picture of them here. I worked for a company called TMPI, and we basically cleaned parts for the high-tech industry. And sometimes there were brand new parts like this. Sometimes there were used parts that had some kind of contamination on them and we needed to clean them. And uh, one of the tricks sometimes was determining what material these parts were made out of. Uh, Sometimes it's easy to tell what material something is made out of, plastic, ceramic, glass, uh, metal. Uh, and There's different kinds of metals. Some metals might be easier to tell apart from other metals, like uh, gold, most of us would recognize on site or uh, copper, or silver. And, uh, but sometimes it's not so easy to tell. So this is kind of an example. And I don't know how easy it is for you to see from the pictures. We actually have three different metals we're looking at here. Uh, and I won't tell you which, which is which. But uh, it was important to find out what the metals, what uh, material or part was made out of, because when you clean it, the cleaning solution is designed to remove whatever contamination is on the surface of the part, but you don't want to actually remove the part itself. We had an incident once where uh, somebody gave us a part that was worth about $30,000 to clean, and by the time we were done cleaning it, we couldn't find the part. <laughs> and that's because it was put in the wrong solution that actually dissolved the metal itself that we were trying to clean. And so it's really important to tell. And so sometimes one way of trying to tell what material the part is made out of was to use a magnet. Uh, if you uh, put a magnet against uh, the material on the top, you'd get no response whatsoever. You know, you can stick it against. There's no pull at all of the magnet. If you were to put it on the part on the bottom there, it would stick very hard. If you were to put it on, on this part, no, I'm sorry, this part here, it would stick very hard. If you were to, no, sorry, this one, it would stick a little bit. This one, it would stick very hard. Everything depended on what the substrate was made out of. And what you were relying on was a property called magnetism, or how magnetic a material is. If you have a magnet and you put it in a refrigerator, it sticks. If you put it on your wood table, it doesn't stick. Why? Because the, um, your refrigerator has steel in it, and steel is a magnetic kind of metal. It responds to the magnetic field, 
And as a result, the magnet actually sticks to it. Now, the reason I'm, I'm talking about this is uh, we have a... Uh, in our study of First John, we're looking at tests to see if a person is really a believer. And uh, if you're a believer today, there is an invisible attribute about you that shows itself at certain circumstances that shows whether you are a believer or not. Magnetism, or whether a material is magnetic, is invisible. You can't see by looking at a part whether it's magnetic or not. But if you take a magnet and you try to stick it, that's when you find out if it's magnetic. And it helps you identify what material it is. Okay, with that in mind, let's go ahead and uh, read the first section of our passage today. 1 John, chapter 3. And verse 24. We'll start actually by just reading one verse. First John 3:24. Now, he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. And depending what kind of Bible you have here, uh, it may not be easier to follow the hymn. So I'll go through it a little bit slowly, most, more slowly, the second time. Now he, meaning the person, individual, who keeps his commandments, is talking about God's commandments, abides in him and he abides in God. And he, or God, abides in in him. And by this we know that he or God abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. How is it that God abides inside of an individual? It's through the Holy Spirit. And this is what sets apart believers from unbelievers. Believers have the Holy Spirit in them. And uh, in case that's a new doctrine to you, this is a major doctrine. Uh, in the Bible, but uh, I thought it's good to look at a few verses just, just to see how certain it is that a believer will have the Holy Spirit in him. And I realize we're talking about something that seems incredible, that the God of heaven will come and dwell inside of a person. Seems too good to be true. But it is true. So we'll look at some verses that say that. First, John 14 and verse 16, Jesus promised that we will receive the Holy Spirit. And I will pray the Father, Jesus is speaking here, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Right? So this is a promise that Jesus himself gave the disciples that the Holy Spirit, God in heaven, would come and dwell inside of a human being. So that's the first. There was a promise. Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit will come into us. Second, we have an historical account of that actually happening. And that historical account is in the book of Acts. Book of Acts, chapter 2. This is the day the church was born. After Jesus died and he rose from the dead, he ascended to heaven. He told his disciples to hang around Jerusalem until his promise of the Holy Spirit would come upon them. 
And this was the day Pentecost, Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead, this happened. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this was the literal fulfillment of Jesus' promise that the Holy Spirit will come into individuals, and it was given to them in, first of all, an audible way, they were meeting in a house, probably a little bit smaller than this one, and it was filled with a mighty rushing wind, or the sound of a mighty rush. They could hear the coming of the Spirit. Then there appeared uh, divided tongues, as if of fire, it says, and it sat upon each of them. So each of them had a visual manifestation of the Holy Spirit coming upon them. And then they were all filled with the Spirit, and each of them could start speaking in tongues they have never speak- spoken before in their lives. It was an historical event, and it was of such magnitude, and I don't know if it was the sound of it, uh, or, or uh, the speaking in tongues, something attracted multitude. People started coming from everywhere to see what had happened. This was a recordable historical event. And Peter then stands up and he preaches his first sermon, and 3,000 people were saved. The church was born as a result of this supernatural event of the Holy Spirit, coming upon the church. Again, audible, visible, real effects in people's lives. The Holy Spirit came. And uh, this is how Peter finishes up his sermon. So he preaches the sermon. He points out to the people there that they were guilty of the death of Christ. He died because of them. And then they're convicted of their sins. They ask him what they have to do. And he picks up in verse 38. Then Peter said to them, Repent, And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So Peter turns around and he promises it to everybody. Yes, Jesus promised it to the disciples. It has happened just like Jesus said it it would. And now Peter is saying, look, it's available to everyone. Whoever is willing to repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus will receive the Holy Spirit. It's a promise that Peter was making to everybody who heard him. And and, uh, that promise was fulfilled. That was the birth of the church. And finally we have in Romans 8-9... It is so certain Jesus promised it has happened historically. It was offered to everyone, all believers. In Romans 8, 9, it says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not of his. The promise of the giving of the Holy Spirit is so sure that if a person does not have the Holy Spirit, he doesn't belong to Christ. He's not a real Christian. And that's really John's main point in the whole passage. So I already gave you, you know, the end here. 
If a person is saved, he will have the Holy Spirit in him. Now, the question is, how do we tell if someone has the Holy Spirit? How can I tell, you know, what metal it is? I can use a magnet or something. What is it that shows this invisible thing? You're looking at me and like, no, I can't see the Holy Spirit in you. Right? What are the tests? What shows that we have the Holy Spirit? And those two main ones in this passage. So, back to 1 John, chapter 4 now. Really? You see, we already made it a whole chapter. We're doing good here. And verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world. And the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So the first sign we have, or evidence of the Holy Spirit, has to do with how we respond to false doctrine. False doctrine. So it says here, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into this world. It's, it's maybe sad, but this world has false prophets. Meaning, it has people who will come to you and tell you they have a message to you from God, and there are certain things that God wants you to believe, or certain things that God wants you to do, and yet it's not true. The message that they're bringing you is not the truth. Now, what this passage tells us is this, the message that they're bringing you may have a real spiritual source. Uh, I grew up as a, you know, an atheist or agnostic, and uh, definitely a materialist. Materialist, uh, in a philosophical term, means believing that uh, you know, all that there is is the material universe, and there's no spiritual universe. Uh, and uh, you know, I would dismiss things about spirits and angels as somehow not real or not significant. Recently, I had some uh, Mormon uh, neighbors moving. Uh, next to my house, and I figured, well, you know, maybe the Lord wants me to witness to them, and uh, so I should try to understand better what it is that Mormons believe. And one of the things that I found out is the uh, the founder of Mormonism. Uh, let's see, I think I had his name here, Joseph Smith. There you go. Uh, claimed to have had angelic vis- visitations. Apparently, an angel appeared to him. Uh, called, uh, I think, Moroni. I know I had it here somewhere, but right now I can't find it in my, in my notes. An angel appeared to him and gave him a message. Uh, now, in my early days, I would have completely dismissed it and said, well, you know, the guy, you know, was dreaming things up or 
Maybe he just made up a story about an angel appearing to him so that people will believe what he said. But this is what the Bible says. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 4.1, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. So, the Bible says that there are real spirits, there's real demons, and that they will lead people astray from the truth. Now, Joseph Smith, as I understand it, was claimed to be a Christian. In fact, he claimed to have been saved in uh, the great revival that happened in the early 1800s. And uh, he prayed after he was saved, uh, and asked the, you know, God which church he should join because there were many different denominations and churches. And that he had this visitation and he told him, don't join any church. I'll use you to start a new church. And, uh, you know, he received a whole set of revelation and instruction. The whole book of Mormon was written as a revelation of some sort that he received to tell people, you know, what it is that they really need to do if they want to be saved. And uh, what we need to realize is it's very possible an angel appeared to him. Now, not an angel, a good angel that follows God, but a spiritual being could have very well appeared to Joseph, Joseph Smith and gave him this revelation. And Joseph Smith may have been very genuine in what he was saying. That was his real experience. And uh, he convinced many people. Today, the moment church numbers somewhere around 15 million people. And uh, one of the most uh, aggressive evangelists, probably uh, the picture there was Jehovah Witnesses, another very aggressive group. They're out there and they will try to convince you that they have the truth of God. And you should believe what they have to tell you about God. Now, we are given here a test in verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Now, first time I read it, it sounded kind of strange. What does it mean that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? Why is that a test to tell if somebody is from God or not? Well, apparently there was a teaching of the Gnostics. So, again... Going back to this letter was written by John in the first century, and there was a rising of a movement called Gnosticism. And uh, one of the things they believed is that uh, the Christ was a spirit. And he, at some point, came and indwelt Jesus the man. And then at a later point, he left Jesus the man, and it was Jesus the man alone that died on the, cro- on the cross. It wasn't the Christ. right? So that's why he says, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come into flesh, what he's saying is that it was Christ himself that became flesh. Jesus isn't a man that received the spirit, the Christ, and then the spirit, the Christ, de- departed and just Jesus the man remained. Jesus was literally the Word made flesh. This is how the Bible says that in the beginning was the Word, and that's talking about Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was God. 
And, verse 14, the Word was made flesh, Jesus himself, the Word of God, meaning God himself, became flesh, entered this world. When you looked at God, you saw a person of the Godhead in the flesh. And that never changed. As he died on the cross, there was God himself dying on the cross for you and for me. And he rose again from the dead with a new, from, from with a new body, still just as much man and just as much God. That did not change. That's what it means. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. It is God in the flesh we're talking about. Nothing less. And it's interesting, if we apply that test today to uh, Mormons or Jehovah Witnesses, we'll find that they will fail at that point. Jesus to them was just a man that became God, and you and I, by virtue of following whatever the Mormon church teach, can become just as much God as Jesus is God. They fail the test. Uh, Jehovah Witnesses believe that Jesus was an angel. I believe they identify him as Michael, the archangel, who then became flesh. <laughs> but just an angel. Right? So the cults today will fail when put under the same test as to exactly who Jesus is and what it is that Jesus did. Now, um, it says here that this is the spirit of the Antichrist. And something I want to remember when I have these people coming to my door is these people may be genuine in what they believe, and they may even in some way thinking they're doing a good deed and really believe they're doing a good deed by coming to me with the message they bring. But there is a spirit behind them of the Antichrist, really Satan himself who's driving the message. The message doesn't come from them. They're just carriers of it. They've been fooled. They've been trapped. And I want to be as kind to them as I can. Not, not accept their message. But sometimes these people will actually get saved. Uh, there was, uh, I forget his name, there was an elder from Fairhaven who used to be one of these people who would come to your door, a Jehovah Witness, and uh, he met uh, an old lady who just stuck with her faith in the Lord Jesus and eventually the Lord used that to bring him to the knowledge of Christ himself. And he was saved out of it, right? So these guys are not necessarily the bad guys, they just happen to be carrying a bad message. There is a bad guy behind them. It says... 2 Corinthians chapter 4, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine upon them. So Satan is in the business of trying to veil people's eyes so they don't see the true gospel, the true way of salvation. And that's really the danger that we're faced with well, the fact we have the Holy Spirit is so critical. My uh, grandfather was in World War II. He, he was uh, Jewish, and uh, he fled Poland when the Germans came in, which saved his life. And he crossed over to the Russian side, and eventually the Russians drafted him. So there he was faced with the Germans again, now in a, a Russian army uh, uniform, and uh, there was, uh, as he explained it to me, there was within the Russian war against the Germans, there was a Russian army and the Polish army. 
The Polish army was basically, all the Polish that ran away to Russia to escape from the Germans, the, German, the Russians said, fine, we'll make an army out of you and we'll use you to fight the Germans. And my grandfather and some of his friends that were from Poland who were actually in the Russian army said, we want to go to join the Polish army, which wasn't necessarily really going to be any better than being part of the Russian army because you still, still took orders from Stalin and you had to do what he told you to do. But uh, they had that idea that they will, you know, leave the Russian army and join the Polish army. And as he tells me the story, told me the story, they were camped in a forest and uh, maybe a few miles from each other. <clears throat> so he and a few of his friends decided, okay, this is the night. They got up in the middle of the night. They started walking over from the Russian army to the Polish army. But uh, it was a forest and perhaps a dark night. And they didn't realize it, but the path they were following was slowly turning. And instead of walking toward the Polish army, they were walking toward the German army. And uh, God in his grace, partly toward me, because I wouldn't be here today if, if the Lord didn't do it, uh, intercepted them with a Russian patrol. So the Russian you know, had these patrols that kind of went along the front line to probably prevent Germans from infiltrating. But instead, he, they captured you know, a bunch of Jews you know, trying to cross over to the German lines. And uh, they were actually, at first, they were going to uh, shoot them for, uh, uh, what do you call it, defection or desertion? Because, I mean, that was the orders. You know, Russians, you know, that cared about their lives didn't want to stay in the front line. And so the orders from Stalin was, shoot everybody that runs away. Um, but there, there happened to have been a high officer in the group, and they just wanted to show the high officer how they did everything properly in the Russian army. So they decided to wait for the next day and have a real trial for them. And as they interrogated them, they found out they were Jews, and they were like adding one and one. Jews will not desert to the German line. <laughs> and... Uh, and so they you know, asked him, well, what is it you were trying to do? And they believed their story. They really wanted to go to the Polish side. So they said, fine, we'll transfer you to the Polish side. They didn't care because they were still fighting on the same side against the Germans. The point I was trying to make there uh, is that it's really critical that we uh, know the truth, that we're not misguided, that we don't get lost. There is a spiritual truth that saves us and we don't want to get lost. And this is where the Holy Spirit becomes so critical. Uh, there used to be... Uh, so one of the things that would have helped my grandfather was this thing on the right-hand side called a compass. I know some of you have never seen one in your life. <laughs> but, uh, you know, a compass is neat because it always points in the same direction. Right? It always points north. And the reason for it, there's a little magnet in there. And uh, the Earth has a magnetic field and uh, the, the little needle will align itself with the magnetic field of the earth and will always point the same way. And so my grandfather would have known that you know, he's turning the wrong way if he had a compass uh, in his hand and maybe light enough to see that compass. Now, the reason we don't have compasses today is we have this thing on the left-hand side called the GPS. And the GPS is more clever than that. It actually uses signals from a bunch of satellites to pinpoint your location, and you're holding your GPS or smartphone in your hand, and your smartphone or GPS know where you are down to a few feet. And they have in, them, uh, in their memory a map of 
really the whole world if they want. It's certainly of your local area. And they can tell you where you are on the map and you just punch in, I want to go you know, to Calvary Bible Chapel. And it immediately plots the way and we can just follow it as we drive or walk. That's why we never need a compass again because we have that. But the point is uh, uh, that, that Paul is saying here, as, as we're faced, sorry, John is saying, as, as we're faced with these lies here, it says, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We have, if you would, a built-in GPS system called the Holy Spirit. It's much more than a GPS system, but among other things is he leads us. And we're able, when somebody is sharing something with us that's not true, we're able to discern that it's just not right. And uh, it says, they are of the world, that is the false prophets, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. The message that they share is a message that appeals to the world. It goes along the line of something, well, Jesus is not really God. He didn't come to die on the cross for your sins and save you. He came with a special teaching. And we'll give you this special knowledge, and with that special knowledge, you can work really hard and earn your way to heaven. And that sounds right to us because that's the message of the world, right? That's the message of the devil from the beginning. You will not surely die. Things are not so bad. There is something you can do. You are good enough. You can make it to heaven. You just need a little bit of help. And that's what false prophets or the cults will give you. Other religions, there's something you can do to make yourself good enough is a message that appeals to them. But we are of God. John is saying here, what he means by that is the apostles, their message is from God. He who knows God hears us. The Holy Spirit just pinpoints. You know, we hear the message of God and we recognize it as true. It says in uh, 1 Corinthians 2.12, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us, by God. These things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So we, we've received the Holy Spirit, and as a result, we can recognize the truth as God presents it to us. I remember before becoming a believer, I was trying to read through the Bible, and I did okay you know, through the Gospels, you know, that's mostly in historical accounts, you can kind of understand what it's talking about. Maybe not very deep, but at least superficially. I made it through Acts, again, an historical account, and I could kind of follow what was happening. I got to the Book of Romans, and it was like I hit a brick wall. I just, I couldn't understand any, I, I just couldn't get to that first chapter, you know, and I tried a few times, and eventually I just stopped trying to read the Bible. And once I was saved, all of a sudden, it made sense to me. And uh, if you're here and you were saved, you probably went through the same experience that the Bible used to be a closed book, and then all of a sudden, it opened up, and you could understand what it was talking about. And the difference? The Holy Spirit inside of you. Okay, let's uh, look at the rest of the passage. Uh, picking up in chapter 4, verse 7. And this is where you will recognize the song we were just singing. Beloved, let us love 
one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God. For God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. So we have here an exhortation to love one another, which, uh, you know, if you've been here as we've been studying First John, should start sounding a little bit familiar, because it's a point that John is making here offer. Often, here is given yet another reason of why we should love one another. We should love one another because God is love. That is what God is like. That's why we should really love one another. Now, he then explains why it was, how is it that we know the love of God? We know the love of God because he sent his own son to die for your sins and to die for my sins. And that's how we know that God loves us. Now, I used to play a game called uh, Jenga with my uh, children. It's one of these good games because it doesn't you know, take a lot to learn how to play it. It's pretty simple. You pull out a piece, right? So it starts stacked up. Uh, you have three, three pieces on each row, and then you stack them upon each other. And if you're really careful, you can take one piece out, and sometimes even two pieces out of a certain level without the thing collapsing on you. But, uh, you know, if you take a piece that's, you know, kind of really holding the whole thing together, let's say, say you try to take this piece out. Is that going to work? Right? The whole thing is going to come collapsing. And uh, if you think about it, that's what happens when we start messing around with who Jesus is. So it says here, we know love, that right? we should love one another, right? We might recognize, everybody recognizes that's what Christianity is all about, right? It might be the only thing people recognize about. Jesus said this, By this people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Well, great, wonderful. But why is it that we should love one another? Well, it's because God is love. Right? Well, how is it that we know that God is love? Because he sent his only begotten son into the world that we should live. Take that piece out and say, well, Jesus is not really God's only begotten son, right? Which is what the cults will say. Well, the whole thing falls apart. Well, that means God doesn't really love me. So what if he sent an angel? God has 
millions, if not, you know, hundreds of millions of angels. You know, God so loved the world, he sent one angel to die for me. I mean, you know, it's some love, but it's not that much of a love. Well, if God doesn't really love me, why should I love you? Right? I mean, the whole thing collapses. if You start messing with who Jesus is. Um, so, the Holy Spirit helps us seize the truth about who Jesus is and the love of God for us. Now, it's been said this, that knowing is half the battle. Right? If we know who the enemy is, what the enemy has, you know, that's half the battle. But knowing is only half the battle. I may know that I should love you, but I may not be able to love you. Right? And that would prevent me from truly loving you. And this is where the Holy Spirit comes in and makes the difference. If you notice, it said in verse 12 that if we love one another, God abides in us. And his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that I can really love you. I'd like to think that I'm a wonderful guy and it's easy for me to love you and it's easy for you to love me. But the truth is, in myself, I am not a wonderful guy. Right? It takes the power of God in me to love you. Now, we, we see this in a couple of passages. Romans chapter 8, it says, uh, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Right? I need to walk according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. I have in myself a sinful law or power. The word law here is really utilized in the sense of a natural or physical law. I have in me a law of sin and death. I am a sinner by nature. But there's now a new law in my members, and that is the law of the Holy Spirit, or the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. Uh, a few uh, months ago, I was in uh, Costco, and we sat across the table from a person that was advertising a certain exercise. Can you get the wind tunnel picture up? And uh, this is neat. They actually have one of these up here in uh, Union Landing, uh, and it's uh, a wind tunnel. And you can go inside that wind tunnel, and uh, it blows wind so hard at you that it will actually lift, lift you up. I think it's called like I fly or something like that. <laughs> because you can actually fly. And what you have here is you have here two laws that are working against each other. You have the law of gravity. That's what keeps me down. But now you have a, another law, and you know, it's the law of aerodynamics or whatever. When you blow enough air at you, it will push you, right? If you're in a really windy day and you try to stand there and the wind really blowing at you, you can feel the force on it. Well, if you could get the wind blowing hard enough, it'll just knock you off your feet and make you fly, and that's why you need to go indoors when there's a hurricane blowing by. But in this particular case, they orient it in such a way that the force of the wind is opposite from the force of gravity, and it actually liberates you, and you can fly. And that's what it's talking about here with the law of the Spirit. I have this law of sin and death, which makes me love nobody but myself. 
But the Holy Spirit comes. And the law of the Holy Spirit lifts me up and allows me to fly. And flying, by the way, is loving you. <laughs> That's God's idea of flying. Right? For us to love one another. It says this in uh, Galatians chapter 5. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Now this is a battle that we as Christians are well aware of. I still have the flesh. I still have a sinful nature as much as I'd love to get rid of it. But I also have the Holy Spirit now. And the Holy Spirit pushes me to love you. It provides that opposing force. And that's why there's a battle in the Christian life, this constant battle between loving myself and putting myself first and the Lord leading me to love you and asking me to put you first. That's what love really is. Okay, We're not talking about an emotion or telling somebody you love them. We're talking about you putting yourself second, putting that person's needs first, and instead caring for that person instead of caring for yourself. I cannot do that naturally. I need the Holy Spirit to enable me to do that. And that's exactly what he does. Uh, I'll just go ahead and skip down to verse 22 here for the sake of time. But the fruit of the Spirit, what is the impact or the result of the Spirit in my life. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Right? We can go on with the list, but we can stop there. That's what the Spirit desires to produce in my life, is love for you. And, by the way, desires to produce in your life love to me, too. Uh, I, I spoke last week, I mentioned how, you know, the young people have really stepped forward um, in these events. You know, that's an act of love. But there's a love that happens here every week, in and out. There's people who have been at this church for many years and they're faithfully continuing to do, you know, we might call them, you know, their duty or responsibility, but it's really a work of love. For uh, someone to come here early every Sunday or stay here late every Sunday to be able to lock up. It takes a lot of love for someone to be preparing Sunday school lessons year after year after year. I don't think so much of my job because, you know, this, you know, my job as a preacher is a very visible one. So a person can come here and preach because they're seeking glory for themselves. But someone who's doing things behind the scene, you know, not being noticed by anyone, year after year, spending hours every week preparing, that is putting others ahead of yourself. That is an act of love. <coughs> And that's the effect of the Spirit in our lives. That's the evidence of having the, whole, the power to fly. Right? The power to love one another, that is evidence of the Spirit. Evidence of the Spirit is evidence that we are children of God. Let me uh, close with uh, this thought. There is a, a thought here that, that uh, came to me in verse 11, I'm sorry, verse uh, 12, starts with these words, no one has seen God at any time. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. The phrase, no one has seen God at any time, happens somewhere else in the Bible. Does anybody other than Jake know? See, I was careful this time. (laughs) Where does that happen? No one has seen God at any time. 
John chapter 1. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Who is that talking about? Jesus. Right? No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, Jesus Himself, has come into this world to declare Him to us, to reveal to us what God is like. Well, in this passage, we're told, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. God wants to reveal himself to the world through you and through me. And the way he does it is by us loving one another. When we love one another, we show God. We show the love of God. And it's our opportunity and privilege to be able to fly. Now, if you're here and you're not a believer, let me remind you of what uh, Peter said at the end of his sermon. Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And it's my prayer that the Lord our God is calling you to himself. And he wants to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, for uh, you sending the third person of the Godhead to dwell in me and uh, every person in this world who, can, uh, who has put their faith in the Lord Jesus. We pray here for anybody who does not yet know you, hasn't yet experienced the blessings of the Holy Spirit, that they might come to you and that they might come to you today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.